CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman, a practicing physician and CMIO, and the host of CMIO Podcast. And today I have a special guest with us. We have Dr. Eric Topol, who is a cardiologist, also the founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla, California. He's the editor-in-chief of Medscape and theheart.org. He's published over 1,200 articles, and he's written a couple of books. So Dr. Topol wanted to welcome you to the show today, and I'm hoping to get your uh, just some background information about the article you wrote in the New Yorker. The article was titled, Why Doctors Should Organize. Tell us a little bit about that and why you ended up writing this piece. Well, it really was uh, incubating for some time, I have to say. Uh, And the disenchantment among physicians, no less clinicians in general, uh, it just continues to get worse, uh, such that uh, we have a global epidemic of burnout. And that is not just hurting physicians, but also hurting patients because we now know that there's an error rate that doubles with um, physician burnout. So uh, the sad part about all this, Mark, is that this has been occurring largely because there is no medical organization that's representing the interests of patients and the patient-doctor relationship. It's a relationship that's been eroding for at least four decades, uh, and it's one that needs to be restored. So we, we have a potential path to do that, both uh, with respect to getting the, the true body of physicians uh, uh, represented, uh, weighing in on important matters of patients, and also the fact that we're looking at new technology that could free up doctors significantly from data clerk functions and uh, getting data organized and you know whether it's reading scans or slides or you know almost anything outsourcing to machines and outsourcing more to patients but none of that will happen unless we get organized when i went live on the electronic health record oh over a decade ago now my patients could feel the disconnect and they let me know it they they were not shy about letting me know that they were not feeling the same relationship and it took me at least six months to get through that learning curve some doctors never get there they can never make that leap to being able to use the electronic health record and build that bond with the patient at the same time i think your article touched on that a little bit there's a line in there that says it's taken decades to transform doctors into data entry clerks. So give me your impression of where the industry is at today. That new doctor coming out and starting into practice, is their experience today just as difficult as what we experienced 10, 15 years ago? Yeah, I, I think it is. I don't think it's progressed. Um, you know, it was set up, as you well know, for billing purposes. It never was set up to help 
uh, clinicians or patients. And it shows. It's basically been like the house. It gets all these renovations, and it gets uglier and uglier. It never gets it never gets fixed. You know, it never it never becomes a nice house. And the EHR of the likes of Epic and Cerner and and the rest of them, they're like that. They're 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 ugly. They're clunky. I mean, I just had a I just not only came in clinic today, but and have to deal with it, but. I was a patient recently, and you know the stuff that has to be entered just to be able to <laughs> to be a patient, to be to be cared for is is obviously it's disruptive, it's it's absurd. If this is the best that we can do in medicine, it's a sad state. And the fact that we never mounted a revolt to this um, when it when it started, no less all the other things I mentioned in the article. And the New Yorker, like relative value units, and you know all the everything that's been done to doctors, there's never been an appropriate counter, and that's because we don't have any organization that represents all doctors. So this EHR is just one facet, and it's the one, the latest, and and it's a, a very uh, substantive hit. And if you, you look at all the articles that have been published on burnout. The uniform message is that this is a significant part of it, that people went into medicine to take care of patients, and this is impeding that. And obviously, um, it's on the patient side as well. I mean, the keyboard is a common enemy of both patients and doctors. So uh, it's just basically degraded the the human bond, and, and we need to get that back. I know there's a strong desire to make it better, particularly from those who are in the audience today, the providers that work really hard to try to make the EMR better for the end users and for the patients as well. If you could make it better, if you could wave a magic wand, what does the ideal state look like? And are there countries out there today who already are using this technology? Uh, well, no, I think it exists. Uh, it isn't in the U.S., uh, that, at least from the major um, suppliers. Uh, it, w- w- it would need to be, you know, very uh, simple. And so one of the ways it would be much more simple if it did not require typing. So if it was voice uh, and using NLP and machine learning, and we've already seen that uh, operational in China and the UK and in pilot studies in the US where there is just the natural conversation which is transcribed into a synthetic note so you know not the human scribe that we rely on more and more today which is absurd like a pre-Gutenberg story but rather that we use AI to get the the uh, a, a far better note than exists today as you know of the notes that are in electronic records today, 80% are cut and pasted from prior notes, and they're error-laden, and they require typing, and to do the cut and pasted. What we want are much better notes uh, that are not relying on any typing. Voice is so much faster. That's why, obviously, the smart speaker era has just been exponential in its growth, because we can talk, it's more natural, it's faster, 
much, much faster. And that's where, after image uh, uh, learning uh, of AI, deep learning, I mean, uh, voice is not far behind. It's actually well-suited for this. As CMIOs, we deal with a lot of the stuff you're talking about, the note bloat, the cut and paste, the endless scrolling, the too many clicks, and the errors associated with all that. And yet I saw something that gave me a glimmer of hope. I was recently at Epic and there were 10,000 of us in the audience. There was a doctor and a pretend patient on the stage and they held a conversation in the format of an office visit. And at the end, the doctor said, write my note and a pretty decent note showed up for a relatively simple office visit. But is that the kind of technology that you're talking about? Is that what we should be looking forward to in the future? Exactly. No, that's what we need. And it's like I uh, uh, spent uh, about a year and a half uh, doing a review of the National Health Service in the UK, uh, leading a review that was for the future of uh, health care there, in particular implications on the workforce. And we had a multi-disciplinary, uh, incredible group of people, you know, everything from you know, doctors and nurses, but economists, ethicists, uh, AI, uh, computer scientists, and on and on. And in that review, which was quite in-depth, and we have a 100-page report that's open access, um, we actually uh, quantify the impact for every minute that you uh, eliminate a doctor typing. What the productivity enhancement is extraordinary for every minute. And that's the country of the UK, imagine in the US. So we need to make that a high priority. And in the UK, they already have centers that have moved to voice. Not, they're not typing. And there's a emergency department of all places that's moved fully to voice. So the fact is, it's not just the note, it's also the orders, it's the, you know, the, the uh, uh, plan. Um, you know, that you use voice for all the things uh, that you normally uh, would have to type. That's like low-hanging fruit that we need to get on. So when we ask industry experts, this looks great, it's exciting, when are we going to get these tools? The answers we get are in the three to five year range, and that's probably for a limited subset of specialties. What are your thoughts on the pace of change? Are we moving fast enough to get this done? Well, the fact that it's already happening in China uh, and it's growing quickly, and I've already seen it operational in the UK. I mean, it doesn't take, if it's operational now, why would it take five years, you know? And that's the problem is that we're so beholden to companies like Epic and Cerner uh, which, you know, they they're, uh, uh, have no capability in this regard. I mean, they, they rely on vendors, uh, companies like Nuance and others, and even they are not progressive enough. So we have, there are over 20 companies that are on it. Some of the tech titans like Microsoft and Google are on it, and then there's lots of different startups. They will get this thing done far quicker than 
three to five years. It, it could be done, since it can't be done now, it's just a matter of, uh, of building on the success that's already been demonstrated. My colleagues and I are, are real excited about the potential of this technology. We do, however, have concerns about another area, which is interoperability. We struggle to care for our patients when the data isn't all in our system. It, we can't get data to and from the system across the street if it's not on the same EHR. And so what do you think it takes to fix this part so that we can, so we can better serve our patients? Do we rely on the EMR vendors? Do we rely on the government? Do doctors have a role in any of this? What are your thoughts on that? Well, again, I think that um, we are just so poorly organized that bad things happen <laughs> to us. Uh, and maybe you can get CMIOs all, or, uh, you know, solidarity and a unified stance, and maybe that would create some power. Uh, I don't know how strong the cohesiveness is. That's what's happened, though, in medicine has been balkanized, and all we have is you know small groups that are uh, loosely uh, congealed. So you know that this this requires activism, uh, and we we don't have enough of that. We've just been head down, and you know just trying to take care of patients, and and that's just become progressively harder. And it's not just that you know doctors are bearing the brunt of it. It's across the board of all clinicians and uh, certainly of patients. So, um, you know, th the will is there. I mean, I think there's an interest to, to get the things back to the future kind of thing. Um, but but we, need a, we need more, um, you know, deliberate uh, efforts. The CMIO role is relatively new. And in my opinion, the beginnings of a CMIO role was to keep politically powerful physicians from causing too much of a ruckus as the system started to engage with computerized order entry and then into full electronic health records. I think some of that role still, still persists today. We have a, a more broad role now, but there's still a component of trying to relieve physician frustration and not letting it get to the point of providers picketing in front of the hospitals with pitchforks. So what's your advice to the administrative physician that's walking the line and trying to balance between advocating for a better tool and not stirring up the physicians to the point of anger? Yeah, no, it's tricky. I understand that. Um, you know, when I had to, a couple of years ago, get retrained for Epic and spend 20 four hours of training that was sickening and was a the fact that that we are you know putting physicians through that you, you get immediate antibody response why do we have it why do we have software that requires that much training obligatory training I mean it's just it's it's hard to describe how uh, off basis is and that we live with it and unfortunately, anybody who's involved with health information systems at the local level becomes um, incriminated, even though they're just trying to help. So it's just uh, the tensions that, 
that we just don't need. And we've got to get a better solution. I've noticed the EHR vendors are extremely well funded and they have a lot of lobbyists and political power. And as evidenced by the um, meaningful use standards that were created, it looks like the EHR vendors' hands were, were in that quite a bit. So what chance do, do the providers have? Do the system, health systems that want things to get better, what is even possible against such a strong headwind? Uh, well, it's a very good question. Um, you know, I had predicted that um, the companies like Epic and Cerner will, will not survive. Um, and that's because they have no patient focus. It, they have a pseudo patient focus, but it's not real. They're enterprise. They basically just want to bring on health systems and charge them, gouge them for, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, it, it's completely absurd. We have enough gouging in the healthcare world. We don't need it from this, these vendors. Um, so, you know, the, the, we're, unfortunately, we're beholden to them, and they're just, the, the, as you alluded to, they're well-funded. It's not even well-funded. It's, it's absurd. Um, so the product is not at all commensurate with the costs of install, installation, supporting, and whatnot. And, you know, if you're looking at this from, like, an outside world tech perspective, you say, wait a minute, this can't, this can't be right. This is, this is, you know, some type of, you know, um, surreal, nightmarish situation. So something's got to give. And I, I think that um, ultimately, um, unless there's some pretty radical changes, the current landscape will get completely, uh, you know, redone. So I was in the clinic the other day working with a struggling provider and she was having difficulty finding the information about the last hospitalization. She was trying to put in a referral and, and couldn't easily locate the doctor she wanted to make the referral to. And the system just wasn't intuitive. It just wasn't easy to use without that extensive training. And I could see that she was frustrated, but when she was done with the visit and I pulled her aside and I asked her, how are you feeling about how that went? She kind of shrugs her shoulders and says, well, it's just the way it is. We just, we just keep going. And she went on to her next patient. And I think there are many doctors who just accept it. This is the way it is. What do you think? Yeah, well, you know, da Daniel Ofrey, who's a friend of mine and a, a noted author, she wrote a wonderful piece in the New York Times about this in June about exploitation of doctors and nurses. And, and that's what this is. That's what, unfortunately, the health system providers are complicit with the um, uh, health information vendors uh, because they've just accepted this. And they've just been essentially uh, held hostage to pay ridiculous amounts of money for uh, absolute pathetic product that interferes with the patient doctor or patient clinician relationship. It doesn't only interfere it, it's markedly disruptive. So, um, you know, I, I'm hoping that we will uh, use the new technologies to restore uh, care, to bring back that bond that has been so seriously uh, 
affected, and, and it's it's got to go in that direction because otherwise it's hard to imagine things could get too much worse um, from this you know the overall um, situation that we're we're looking at. Let's switch gears for a minute and talk about artificial intelligence. You've written books on this, clearly an expert in the field, so definitely looking forward to your opinion. As CMIOs, we get involved with artificial intelligence projects a fair amount. Uh, lately, we see a bunch of different models out there about sepsis or readmission prevention or the risk of deterioration on the, on the clinical floors. And some of us are excited by it, and yet some providers are more resistant. What's your thoughts about where the industry is going with this artificial intelligence, and what can we look forward to? Yeah, well, I think the prediction thing is soft. Uh, you know, in, in the book Deep Medicine, I went over all the prospects, and obviously the one that's furthest along is an image recognition. And so that includes, obviously, not just radiology scans or pathology slides, uh, but it also, you know, gets into uh, skin lesions and uh, electrocardiograms and uh, colonoscopy, um, uh, machine vision. So it's across the board. We do a lot on images. Uh, I kind of group them as doctors with patterns, which is their main existence and then doctors without patterns and they still have lots of patterns that they rely on so that is the one that is clearly you know the front runner um, it varies by specialty because uh, the uh, pathologists are very reluctant to put millions of dollars into conversion to whole slide uh, digital pathology so you know, less than 1% have made that conversion. It's really sad because if less money was being diverted for these cockamamie informatics systems, they would probably be able to afford this conversion and, and be cost-saving in the long run. At any rate, so that's the big sweet spot for deep learning. The second area, which is um, for speech, is not as well developed. Um, and that's where it comes in in terms of this keyboard liberation. And then the third area is prediction, and that's even less um, well um, uh, established. When I say established, I mean prospective studies, uh, ideally, you know, randomized with outcomes, um, and, and there's very few of those. In fact, the only randomized study really is colonoscopy for picking up polyps that was done in China. And there have been prospective studies like diabetic retinopathy to pick that up in a primary care doctor's office without the need of a physician. So a doctorless uh, ability to diagnose diabetic retinopathy pretty accurately, but it wasn't a randomized trial. So, you know, that's kind of where we are right now. And I, sepsis and all the predictions of you name it are much less uh, established. So for example, uh, a couple weeks ago in Nature, a very important paper was published on predicting kidney injury. And one in five people in the hospital will have kidney injury. And I wrote the editorial for that for Nature. And the point being is it was very nice in terms of bringing in all the data and predicting a day or two ahead of injury that, it would, that it occurred that it could have predicted, could have predicted, because it was a retrospective study. 
in a large number of veterans, 93% of whom were male. So these data sets that are used, they're, they're, these labeled data sets, they're, they're used repetitively. They're, they are not the real world. And we need to get real world evidence. So we're, we're long on promise and short on proof across the board. And the short, of the three areas, prediction is the, is the shortest on proof. But across the board, we're early in AI in medicine. Let me let you out of here with uh, just one more question. I want to go back to burnout, something that you had mentioned in the beginning of the program. The clinicians that are in the practices today, they're seeing 20, 30 patients a day or more, and some of them are struggling, and they really are hoping things get better. As CMIOs, our job is to bring them some of that news of hope. What do you see that's optimistic and making you feel good about the future here? <laughs> oh, wow. Well, I, I, I just hope that we could say hope is on the way. You know, that that's why I wrote the Deep Medicine book, and that's also why um, the New Yorker article appeared is how are we going to get this thing done? How are we going to prevent things from getting worse? And with the productivity and the ability to rely more on machines before um, doctors, you know, look at a, per, a patient's data because it's teed up for them or because we can offload from being data entry people to uh, being liberated from keyboards. Um, None of these things are going to happen, including what we didn't discuss, Mark, the outsourcing uh, to patients, a lot of things that can be done autonomously with AI support. So the message is, I don't know of immediate solutions, except I, I do think there's a path that we can uh, uh, adopt that will get us out of the woods, so to speak, and get us to a, a state where why people went into medicine in the first place, which was to provide care to be able to bond with uh, patients. And I, I know that's what patients want. So I'm, I'm very optimistic someday we'll get there. And if we push on it, we may get there even sooner. The audience you're speaking to today is definitely devoted towards moving down that path, making things better. We want our frontline clinicians to feel that the software is getting easier to use. We want our patients to feel that connection coming back. So thank you for coming on the show, giving us your insights into technology, where the state of the industry is and where we hopefully will get to. It's been wonderful to, to hear those insights. Well, thanks, Mark. And, I, and the reason I, you know, was, I agreed to do the podcast is I have tremendous respect for the CMIOs, and uh, I know how hard that work is. And uh, we, we so much rely on uh, this community of uh, physician informaticists and uh, I think you know, hopefully we're going to move to a much higher plane in the years ahead so enjoyed the discussion with you thank you Eric I enjoyed it too and that's our show for today thank you for listening to CMIO podcast I've been your host Dr. Mark Weissman and you can reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at cmiopodcast at gmail.com Go to the website at cmiopodcast.com and send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, general feedback, or just to connect. 
I look forward to bringing you our next episode.